Well, open your Bibles again to Romans 9, and we worked our way to verse 29 last week, and we're actually going to resume our study there this morning in verse 30 and go all the way through chapter 10, verse 13. By way of review, last week in chapter 9, Paul begins to put down a couple of really important pieces of truth, and, and to just simply summarize it, the two truths are these, that this God who reveals himself to us through the Bible is a God of absolute sovereignty. He has the power and right to create people and things in any way he deems wise and best. And we looked at some really hard truth, hard from the human perspective, that God actually uh, shows mercy on those that he will show mercy, and he even hardens some as he chooses to harden them. And the particular example that Paul gave to us was Pharaoh, who long ago defied the living God as he sent Moses and Aaron into his court, and there as God's messengers, they issued the warning from God, let God's people go or plagues will come. And 14 different times through that account, as it's recorded in Exodus, you read that Pharaoh hardened himself, or you will see an alternative of that, that God was actually hardening Pharaoh. Now, that's sobering to us. It puts us back on our heels to think that there is an entity in the universe who has the power to actually shape our very wills, but that's what the sovereignty of God is about. He's God. You and I are not. Now, number two is that God is also merciful. And whereas we might look at Gentile nations in particular, as Paul was reminding us, and say they have no access to the privileges that Israel enjoyed. Like God didn't gather the nations of the earth at Mount Sinai long ago and say, here are my Ten Commandments. Here is my word so that you can understand it and practice it rightly. The nations of the earth, the Gentile nations, never had that privilege. And so to that end, they would never fall under the heading, as Paul was using it, that they were God's people. But then he quotes from Hosea, and we'll touch on this again, going back to it in just a moment, and and actually draws this promise out of Hosea that those who were not my people, according to God, God works in such a way by his mercy that they not only have the opportunity, but because of his powerful work in their souls changing them, they actually become the people of God. And it culminates even with that powerful truth, and this is really where we were uh, coming to in, in in a climactic moment, so to speak, as Paul quotes Hosea, uh, verse 26, that the people you would never expect to fall in, under this heading or have this identity are actually called sons of the living God. Sons of the living God. So that's a, a very brief summary of where we were last week, and even last week's message was titled, Let God Be God. Stop trying to be God. Stop trying to fully understand all the things that are actually beyond human understanding. Just let God be God. You and I get into trouble when we try to sit in his seat. You know what? To be really honest, I don't want any of you here to be God, and you don't want me to be God either. We would really mess it up. There's only one being in all the universe who should be and is. It's this God. Now, I want to resume Uh, reading here. So go to Romans 9 and look at verse 30 with me. And 
we'll read through verse 13 of chapter 10. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, insert the word righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Now go back to verse 30. Paul asks another question. He's been asking a series of questions throughout this passage. And when he says or asks, what shall we say then? It it has reference to everything that preceded it. So kind of that summary statement. So how do we respond then to the fact that God is absolutely sovereign? How do we respond to the fact that God seems to be demonstrating and working his powerful mercy in 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 the ranks of Gentiles And yet at the same time, so few Jews are responding to the gospel, though they had all the privileges. What do we say to this big picture that Paul has set before us? Well, the passage explains, as one author says, what is happening from the human perspective. So think of chapter 9 in this way. We we stood on God's side of the work of salvation and, and strained our little pea brains to understand exactly how God could be sovereign in every way and merciful and choose some and harden others like Pharaoh. I mean, that's like mind-blowing stuff. And now Paul takes us into chapter 10 and in one sense says, let's stand on the human side and, and look at the same scenario as it unfolds. And so there's an explanation of the present scenario that first of all informs us, but then as we will see, it it ought to move us to very specific action. Now here's the first part of it. The Gentiles have attained a righteousness by faith alone. Look at Paul's words here. We just read verse 30. What shall we say then? Well, here's part of the answer. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have actually attained it. That seems like a contradictory thought, doesn't it? 
How is that? Well, now Paul tells us that is a righteousness that is by faith. Beloved, this is more evidence of God's mercy, that he actually opens salvation to people who aren't initially looking for it, that he begins to do something to work in their hearts, to work in their minds in a way where they open their eyes to a need of this righteousness. Remember those Hosea quotations that those who are not my people are called my people. Those who were not beloved are called beloved. Those who were not defined by their relationship with God are now brought into a relationship where it's true that they are sons of the living God. Such a high privilege, an amazing privilege, but the privilege comes only by faith. Now, here's the corollary. Look at the second part of this, verse 31. Israel as opposed to the Gentiles who attained righteousness by faith, they have failed to attain the righteousness that they were actually pursuing all along. Look at verse 31. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Again, that almost blows the mind. The most religious people, the most privileged people on planet Earth who devote themselves with zeal, as Paul will say in just a moment, actually fail to attain the thing they want to attain. And verse 32 explains exactly why. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. It's such a deep tragedy that is unfolding here in this text for us. For all the privileges that Israel enjoyed, and remember Paul had listed a number of them back in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. For all those privileges, they've completely missed the point. They believe their works will pay off with the righteousness that God requires. They believe that if they are faithful enough to obey the Ten Commandments and then all the statutes and ordinances that flowed out of those Ten Commandments, if they they show up on Sabbath to worship at the synagogue, they hear the, the, the Scriptures read, if they show up at the particular feast days and they offer their tithes and offerings on time and and they meet every part of the law, well, doesn't that count for something with God? And what Paul is actually explaining is that there's a failure not only in, in, in their inability to be perfectly righteous, but they actually reject the real truth that is woven into all of that law. Look at the end of verse 32. Paul begins to say they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. That seems like an odd picture, doesn't it? What, what stumbling stone are we talking about? Well, 33 gives us a little more understanding. As it is written... And and Paul is actually going to take a portion of Isaiah 8, verse 14, and layer it into Isaiah 28, 16. And here is what he says. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him, so that's a really significant clue about this stone, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the stone is not simply a a system of religion or some secret truth somewhere. It's actually a person. Who is the him that Paul is making reference to? Well, it's none other than Christ. And that's where Paul doesn't really take a detour, but he builds on this as we come into chapter 11. So for a moment, we're going to listen to him because now he begins to talk about the effect of, of not just the present scenario he is living and serving in, but even the effect of God's word on his heart. 
See, what is happening here is that the the stone over which Israel stumbles is Christ himself, their Messiah. And whereas they thought their obedience would be the pathway to righteousness, Paul is saying the law was never intended to be a pathway to your own righteousness, but rather it's a guide that should lead you to Christ. But they, they see Christ presented before them, and people like Paul show up and say, you need to repent of your sins, you're not righteous enough, but God has provided his only son as your sacrifice, or the big, the big fancy theological word we sang a little while ago, propitiation. That is, Jesus Christ is the singular, satisfactory sacrifice for our sins. But Israel hears that message preached and proclaimed, and they're like, no, thank you. We've got this. As we know the law, we understand what God requires. We're committed to keeping it, so let us work this thing out. Now look at verse 10, because before we get to even more of the explanation, Paul just goes back to where he was even at the the beginning of chapter 9. You see more of his heart unfolding here, and it's interesting to me that the effect of the present scenario and these powerful truths is that Paul is a man of prayer. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Their obedience is actually a pathway to destruction. I know that sounds contradictory. We'll come back around to that. But because they are rejecting Christ, they don't want a substitute righteousness gifted to them. They want to earn their way into the kingdom. Here's Paul saying, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. It's interesting to me that, we, we, and this almost doesn't seem right to say it this way, but despite all that Paul believes and has written about God's hardening Israel for a time, he prays. Despite all that Paul is experiencing with reference to the Jews rejecting his ministry and the gospel ministry of others, he prays that they may be saved. Despite the opposition and false accusations made against him by the Jewish leaders and communities, you can read all kinds of things in Acts that make you say the Jews were not a a, a sympathetic audience for this apostle. Despite all of that, he actively prays that they would be saved. And friends, so should we. It it grieves me that the the doctrine of God's sovereignty has been so uh, abused and and misapplied that there are those in the world who say, well, God has, has already made the decisions and choices, so what you and I do can't really make a difference. But that is not what you read in the scriptures, and that's not the way Paul lives his life. No one believed in the sovereignty of God with greater confidence and clarity than the apostle Paul. But you don't see him on the sidelines just kind of folding his hands and stepping back and going, well, I'm gonna let God work this out because after all, he hard, after all, he hardens whom he will harden and he shows mercy on whom he will mercy. No, you actually see Paul on his knees, as it were, begging the sovereign, merciful God, save these people who are in such rebellion against you. Save them. So here's a word of caution, if not warning, to you who are big time capital S sovereignists, and actually all of us should be that. Don't ever let that become an excuse for laziness in gospel ministry. It actually should be the fuel in gospel ministry. We pray because only God has the power to change a person's heart. We pray because only God has the power to change the way a person thinks or lives his or her life. Only God has the power to change the way a person believes. And we pray because God has a long track record 
of sovereignly saving the most hostile, hard-hearted, belligerent people among us? Who's in your hashtag prayer list that, humanly speaking, has no hope of salvation? I hope you have at least some there. And for you who are guests, hashtag is simply a little device. You know, you know what a hashtag is, right? Um, it looks like a tic-tac-toe chart. And so earlier this summer, we just we passed out three-by-five cards one night at one of our prayer gatherings, and we had everybody draw a hashtag there, and it creates nine boxes. And rather than playing tic-tac-toe or, you know, hashtag something, you know, for your social media account, we filled in those nine boxes with nine names. And we've been praying individually and as a church for our hashtag. And so I know, I know some of you are like, oh, yeah, I need to dig that thing out. You should either dig it out or recreate it. And some of you who are brand new to this idea, like, a hashtag prayer list. Yeah, it's the simplest thing. It's just a daily reminder, and I keep mine actually in the corner of my desk, and, and it's, it's just a visible reminder to me of friends and family that God has connected me to who need to be saved, and prayer is the key for that because I know that the power is not within Danny Brooks to create such a persuasive argument you know, that any one of those nine individuals will go, oh, I've never thought of it that way before, Danny. I'm so glad that you spent hours and hours this week crafting that apologetic presentation, and because you are such a gifted, persuasive evangelist, I now believe. Now, I'm gonna do the best I can to present the gospel. Each of us should, right? But, but you can actually do that without any prayer, and you'll see that there really aren't eternal results. But to pray on the basis of the beautiful character of God, the powerful character of God, and the powerful promises, as you see Paul doing, right? Because he's, he's been quoting everything from Exodus to Deuteronomy to Hosea and Joel, and he's gonna keep quoting some of those Old Testament promises, not as proof text for his argument primarily, but as the promises out of which the Christian life arises, including evangelism, including prayer. I submit to you that those of us who pray very little actually don't believe enough in the sovereignty of God. Because one of two things is true. You don't pray because you're too busy doing other things or you don't pray because you just haven't really come to understand the power of that communication with this God and how he blesses it. And that brings me to the second part of this question. So it is an important question. Who's in your hashtag prayer list? And, and think that, you know, who, who, humanly speaking, has no hope of salvation, but the, the better and greater question is, who are you praying to? There's some great heroes of the faith, Paul being one of them, but I, it's, never even, it's never even been from my mind to make some kind of prayer to the Apostle Paul because he's not sovereign. There's only one being, this God. So do you pray? How do you pray? Will you pray? Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now look at verse two. And this is where Paul comes back to give a little fuller explanation of how the Gentiles could get it by faith and yet Israel with all their privileges, all their religious observance and and practice would miss it. Well, Look at verse two, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. And you know what the word zeal means, it's just it's a strong fervor. 
There are zealous fans all around the world today, all kinds of sporting events and um, you know, daily reminders that, that we want to be loyal to something that, makes, that at least appears to be bigger than we are. And some of you as zealous fans are disappointed today because over the weekend your team suffered a devastating loss. And others are elated today because they're, the team that they are zealous for you know, achieved that end. And maybe it was just a, another win in the conference column yesterday or the clinching of the National League Championship. Way to go, Braves. Um, those are, those are little uh, small reflections of zeal. What Paul is saying, and this is not, he's not even criticizing them, it's actually commendable that these dear Jews, and, and he's one of them, they have a zeal for God. There's a strong fervor, but it's misdirected, and ultimately the faith itself is misplaced. Look at the next line, but not according to knowledge. Think of how many religions in the world are zealous for a God or multiple gods, and the, the problem is not on the zeal side. The problem is, is, in the, is in the truth column because either they worship gods who are false, gods who don't even exist, or they try to worship the one true God in a false way, and that's what the Jews were doing. Paul's not quarreling with the God that they're worshiping or their understanding of who he is, but what are they ignorant of? Well, verse three tells us they're ignorant of the righteousness of God and they are seeking to establish their own. Now look at this next phrase because this is surprising. They did not, and even we could say they do not, submit to God's righteousness. I'm sure that any zealous Jew that Paul was describing here would be very offended to hear him assess their religious zeal with words like these, that ultimately you're in rebellion to God. But he's explaining what it means that they've stumbled over that stone, which was Christ. Now go back to Philippians 3, verse 4. This is Paul's spiritual resume. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. That was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants. Circumcised on the eighth day. That's spelled out in Old Testament law. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. The Pharisees were, were not just religious teachers in Israel, but the word itself means the separated ones. And they prided themselves in being separate from anything and anyone who was unholy. They were meticulous in keeping the law of God. Experts in what God said and experts in what it meant, even though it had morphed into a really ugly system of religion. So a Pharisee, verse six, as to zeal, now here's how his zeal manifested itself, a persecutor of the church. Why would Paul persecute the church? Because ultimately, he believed that the gospel they were preaching and even the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was a threat to that Old Testament system. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So in one sense, if you followed Paul around, you know, with God's law written out on a page, a bunch of check boxes uh, in, the, in the left margin there, or, well, Hebrews probably be on the right side, right? Because they write from right to left. 
But anyhow, if you follow them around every day, you'd, you'd be able to check all the appropriate boxes. See, that's his, that's his spiritual resume, if you will. But now, in the portion that Matt read just a little bit ago, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, of knowing the stone. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, here's the real tragedy of what was taking place with so many Jewish people in Paul's day, and it's actually the tragedy of what's taking place even in this context, so many religious people who I would even say, you know, they, they, they are making an effort to worship the, the, the God of the Bible, though they're mistaken on several things about his nature, his character, and his work, but ultimately they, like the Jews, are seeking to establish their own righteousness by means of their own obedience and zeal but as we've heard Paul say from the very first chapter of this letter the gospel is the power of God for salvation everyone believes the gospel is not the power of you and me to achieve our own righteousness Paul went on to say in chapter 1 verse 17 in it that is in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith and there's not one moment where you insert your works into that and go, oh, well, you know, we praise God for the 98% that Jesus supplies by his life, death, and resurrection, but here's my 2% contribution. It's from faith to faith. The gospel has not changed from the time of Moses until ours. The gospel has always been the good news of God's power to save those who believe. The gospel has always been the good news of God's righteousness. First, that he requires a righteousness which we do not have, and that's devastating when you come face to face with that reality and be like, ah, I'm, I fall short of the glory of God. I'm in deep trouble. But that's what positions you to receive the gift of his righteousness, a righteousness that he has provided through his one and only son, Jesus the Christ. It's a righteousness that comes by faith, not by works. It's a righteousness that comes by grace, not the result of our self-effort. It's a righteousness that comes as a gift of his mercy. And we read it in, in Romans 3, verses 21 and 22. The righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 4. Go back to Romans 10 and look at verse 4. And this is where Paul makes it explicitly clear. I touched on this a moment ago. Who is the stone? Well, now he says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What does he mean by the end of the law? Well, it has both an aspect of he's the fulfillment of it and he's the termination of it. Let me illustrate it this way, and I'm borrowing this from uh, one of the authors that I, I've used in the study of Romans who uses the analogy of a race course, but I'm gonna make it a little more personal here. It, it has been reported to me that several members of our church have actually registered for a Spartan race next year. Do, do you all know what a Spartan race is? It is a race, and, and it varies in length. You can do some of the smaller ones, or middle ones, and then there are ultra-long ones where you not only cover a certain distance on the map, but all along the way there are stations and obstacles that you have to negotiate. And this particular race, as it was told to me, is about, it's a little over 13 miles, am I right? 13.1? And 30 obstacles. 
Now, if you're eight years old, most of these obstacles, like, you do this every day on the playground, or at least playgrounds like I grew up on. Like, I mean, you got jungle gyms and ropes, and you're going to jump over stuff and walk on balance beams and, and this, that, and the other. But, you know, when you're 30 or 40 or 50, it's a whole different game. And these, and these obstacles are required, and there's a penalty if you don't complete the obstacle that's in front of you. And you know what the penalty is? 30 burpees. Some of you may say, what is a burpee? Oh, go look it up, and then try one. And I've, you know, heard from, uh, from these friends whose sanity I question at this point. The average finish time, I mean, if you're really in shape and, and you're ready to go, you might complete this thing in about three hours. That'd be a really good time. Average completion time is six to nine hours, and they cut it off at 15 hours. Like, it doesn't matter where you are on the course. It doesn't matter how many penalty burpees you've done. 15 hours, done. You're going home. But the whole goal of this race, like any race, is to reach the finish line, right? That finish line represents both the goal and the end of the race. Well, similarly, when Paul says Christ is the end of the law, he is the goal of the law, and there's nothing beyond that point either. And that's what so many in Israel were failing to see. The Ten Commandments were ultimately given to point them to Jesus. All the statutes, all the ordinances, all the feast days, every Sabbath practice was ultimately designed to get them to see Jesus. But they got so caught up in their own righteousness and the practice of all that and how God might be impressed with all that that they totally missed Jesus. And that's the great heartbreak we ought to live with as followers of Jesus today, that there's so many zealous religious people, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, many of them very committed in a way similar, if not identical, to what Paul was seeing in his own Jewish community. But because Christ is not the object of the faith, and because Christ is not at the center of what they really believe, they fail to attain the very righteousness that God offers. Verse 5, he says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. He's quoting Leviticus 18.5, where God just said straight up, keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, that sounds like it might be a real possibility until you, until you look in the mirror and go, but I don't have that kind of strength. It'd be like me trying to go out right now and complete a Spartan race of any length. It's just not in me. It's not in me physically, and it's not in me mentally. I might get a little ways down the race, but I'm not even going to come close to the finish line in the current shape and age and condition I'm in. And so while that looks like It might be achievable under the right circumstances. The reality, go back to Romans 3, there's not one of us who's righteous enough. None who does good. None who seeks after God. Not in the perfect way. And so Paul closes the door on those who have some kind of delusion. Oh, I can do this. No, there's not one who can. Now in stark contrast to the righteousness that's based on the law, look at verse 6. Paul takes us back to the righteousness based on faith. How does that righteousness speak? He personifies it in a sense, doesn't he? Some of these metaphors are beautiful for us. They help us understand the heart of our God and the heart of the gospel. 
So the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, and that would be another clear allusion to, to Moses, the writings in Deuteronomy, and specifically, to be specific, where God had warned Israel not to conclude and say that God is giving them the promised land because of their righteousness. So Paul seems to take that thing that would be very well known to, to the Jews and tweak it a little bit here in the book, uh, the letter to the Romans. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? And now here's Paul's interpretation of what he's writing. That is to bring Christ down or to bring Messiah down. Like, really, you, you think that your righteousness and your obedience and your zeal is actually gonna like, give you the special elevator to heaven where you could say, hey, Jesus, our Messiah, could you come to earth now because we've done it. We're, we're worthy for you to come down. That's, that's absurd for a couple of reasons. One, Jesus has already come down. Number two, there's, there's nobody who can bring him down by their own righteousness. Verse seven, who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ or Messiah up from the dead. So a, a clear allusion to the grave. What brought Jesus out of the grave? The righteousness of, of, of zealous people like us? No, it was a miraculous act of God. The divine power that went to work, but but to, to think that you could achieve righteousness is as ludicrous as the scenario that Paul's setting before us that somehow we could, we could either go up to heaven and bring Jesus down or go into the grave and bring Jesus back to life. Verse eight, but what does it say? And again, he quotes Deuteronomy 30, now verse 14. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And now his very clear explanation, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Doug Moo, who has been a great blessing to me, whose commentary I so value, writes of this particular truth. The grace of God that underlies the Mosaic Covenant operates now in the New Covenant. And just as Israel could not plead the excuse that she did not know God's will, so now Paul says neither Jew nor Gentile can plead ignorance of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. The point is that God is not waiting for some extraordinary act of religious zeal on your part or mine before he saves you. You and I are not going to bring down Messiah by our law keeping any more than we could bring him back to life from uh, the, the tomb. That's not the righteousness of God and that's not the gospel. Now look at what Paul says next, verse nine. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the, from the dead, you will be saved. It's not if you confess with your mouth your righteousness and believe in your heart that you are righteous enough for him to rise from the dead, you'll be saved. It, it, it's not that at all. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, and here again, he grabs an Old Testament promise from Isaiah Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Or you could hear that. They will not be disappointed. Nobody's ever come, nobody who has ever come to Jesus and said, would you forgive me, has found him to say, no, not you. No one who's ever come to Jesus to say, would, would you save me and give me the gift of eternal life has heard him say, sorry, already given out today's allotment. Verse 11, the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For, and this is Joel, Joel's prophecy, 232, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
So you begin to see two thrusts open up in the heart of Paul, two responses, if you will, to this powerful truth. First, that God is sovereign and merciful in all his ways, that there's such a confusing scenario as he seeks to do gospel ministry. Why aren't more of my Jewish brothers and sisters responding in faith? Why do the Gentiles, who really had no access to the privileges, respond as they are in faith right now? Why, Lord? What's the response to all of this? It moves him to pray, for their salvation, and to continue to speak openly. Hey, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever, whoever, whoever. We're gonna pause here and next week resume because there are powerful questions that begin in verse 14 that all of us need to wrestle with. But there are some really glorious opportunities before us in this generation, right now, the same kind of privileges uh, that, that Paul understood and the same promises that not only served as the foundation of his ministry but were like this great rocket fuel in gospel ministry that God has given us as well. But for this moment, as we wrap this up here in the last couple of minutes, I want to ask you personally, are you, like some of the Jews that Paul referred to, stumbling over Christ? Here are evidences of stumbling and this is not comprehensive, but let me make some suggestions. Sometimes that anger we feel, anger that Jesus is the only way, that, that's evidence of stumbling. I know, humanly speaking, I understand that, especially when you think in reference to friends or family who, who may not believe as followers of Jesus, as, as Paul describes here. It, it may seem too exclusive. It may seem even to be uh, a, a little bigoted or arrogant that someone would stand up and say Jesus is the only way but that's what Jesus said my friends I am the way I am the truth I am the life no one comes to the father but by me you see remember zeal alone doesn't save are you stumbling over Christ as many Jews did in Paul's day well what does God ask of you he asks of you these Three key words in, in this last portion we read. First, the confession of your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And to confess that means that you also turn away from living or even thinking like you're Lord. And some of us stumble in that way. Because at the end of the day, we want to be Lord. I want to call the shots. I want to make the decisions. I want to choose what life I live, where I go, what career I pursue. But that's not actually the Christian way. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Number two, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Some of you say, boy, that's a lot for me to believe. I know, but it's what God's asking you to believe. That means that you, you can't believe that somehow by your righteousness you would bring Jesus up from the abyss. That by your zealous religious efforts uh, you might create a scenario where God would be impressed with you and say, oh, now you're worthy. No, it means that I believe in my heart, you believe in your heart, that Jesus is who God reveals him to be and that God the Father has done all that he has said he would do through Jesus. And then finally, that word call. Look at verse 13 again. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You say, how do I do that? First of all, from your heart. You call personally. You call sincerely. You call honestly. Jesus I'm a sinner, save me. That'd be an example of a call. Jesus, I'm weary of trying to be righteous enough, and I know I can't do it. 
Give me the gift of righteousness that Paul talks about here. That's an example of a call. What about you? Second and final category to think in, are you praying in the way Paul prays? Both on the basis of God's character, on the basis of God's promises, and even out of the realities of what we see. Can you say, as Paul said back in chapter nine, if it were possible, I would would undergo God's curse myself for the sake of my brothers. What a heart. Or as he said here at the beginning of chapter 10, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I would encourage you in a very practical way, put a marker in a passage like this and, and then even replace the third person pronouns like them uh, as we encountered it in chapter 10 verse one with actual names so that as your Bible is open to Romans 10 and you're thinking through that, you might say, Lord, my heart's desire and prayer to God for, and then fill in the blank with the name of the person. Start with your hashtag. The nine names there, pray this very text. Lord, this is my prayer to you, that so-and-so would be saved. So-and-so would be saved. So-and-so would be saved. Are you praying in the way that Paul prays? Would you bow your heads with me, please? As your heads are bowed, no one's looking around, and we enter a, a moment of prayer. First of all, I want to ask you to respond to the Lord's word as you've heard it and as you are sensing it in your soul and respond in obedience and faith. For some of you, that may mean that this is the day where you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and call on the name of the Lord. Are you doing that right now? Please? Just tell Jesus what you're thinking. And listen to him. Listen to the spirit. There's probably sin that you need to confess, so just make it known to him. He already knows everything about you, but he calls you to admit that to him and turn away from it. That's what we call repentance. And ask him for forgiveness. Some need to repent of their own religious zeal like the Jews needed to. It means you say, God, I'm sorry, I've been, I've been trying to impress you, trying to earn righteousness, I see now. I can't. Good, tell him. Call to him. And then there's some of you who've actually grown weary in praying. You've forgotten that God is not only sovereign, but he's merciful. And he delights to take your prayers and mine and use them as part of the power of change and transformation and salvation. Would you commit yourself anew and afresh to praying in that way? Now, Father, take your word, take all that you have given to us in this morning, sanctify it, and seal it to our hearts. We thank you that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So let that work continue on this day, in this place even, in our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.